Well, if you have walked around the A&M campus, you know that there are memorials and statues everywhere you look. They're all over the place. So as you walk around, if you walk near the academic building, you're going to see this bronze statue of Sol Ross, Lawrence Sullivan Ross, a 19th century governor of Texas and a president of Texas A&M. If you take the tour, you know that Sol Ross is highly revered around here, largely because in order to save the university, he punched a guy out in the legislature. You may remember that story. So everybody thought, man, good deal. Let's put up a statue, right? So kids walk around, students walk around and they look at this statue and you can see the coins at his feet where they put coins for good luck before their test. Kind of an offering to the local pagan gods of Texas A&M. That's what they do. Uh, If you walk a little further around campus, you'll run into James Earl Rudder, the mid-20th century president of Texas A&M who helped usher us into the 20th century, made a lot of changes to the rules and the way the university works. And probably because of him, we are the large university that we are today. So he did some good stuff. We put up a statue. If you go over by uh, the uh, president's house, you're even going to see a monument to James Earl Rudder's dog, Ranger. Uh, because I guess Ranger was a good dog. And so they have a little tombstone there for him. He lived from 1958 to 1965. He was every Aggie's friend. In fact, I think that's his collar and his little water dish or food bowl next to it. So a good dog, we put up a statue. You go over by Kyle Field, you're going to see the 12th man, E. King Gill. There's a big statue of E. King Gill, who in 1922 suited up ready to jump in and help his team when they were shorthanded because so many players were getting injured. And so you hear that this is one of the first stories you hear as a freshman is about E. King Gill. And they tell you every Aggie ought to always be ready to jump in the game. And that's why we stand up during the game. Now, they're never actually going to call you to jump in the game. Uh, bad news for you. If you think you're ready, you're not trained, right? But, but it's the spirit of the thing. So we build statues to remind us of that. There's also the other statue of E. King Gill on campus. They moved this one in order to make room for the new one. And the other one stands over by Rudder Fountain. I, I saw this and I, I thought, you know, maybe in a few years there will be five, six, seven, eight statues of E. King Gill all over. And they'll just keep moving the old ones to darker and darker corners of the campus as we proliferate memorials throughout the university. Right? There's also this uh, statue of Pinky Wilson who wrote the Aggie War Hymn right around the, where the quad is. There's also a statue of the Aggie ring, the quintessential symbol of Aggiedom. Everywhere you go. Now, this is just a sampling of the memorials that we have and the monuments that we have on our campus. We are a monument-making people. If something happens, somebody says, call the sculptor, get the bronze, let's make a statue, let's do it right now. Now, it may encourage you to know that even though we make a lot of statues, that's a biblical tradition. That as you read through the scripture, it's interesting to notice that at critical points in their history, the people of God, especially in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they would pause when something big happened and they would say, let's put up a memorial. Let's put up a pile of rocks. Let's put up a statue. Let's put up some way to remember what God has done. All right, so they would pause and they'd set up these memorial stones. There's a couple of key passages in that regard. One is Joshua chapter 4. 
After wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the people finally entered the promised land. And you may remember God parted the river Jordan so they could walk across the river Jordan on dry land. When they got across, Joshua said to the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes, he said, all right, each of you guys grab a stone, walk out into the Jordan and place that stone in the middle at the crossing point. And Joshua said to them, I want you to do this so that in the future, when your kids walk by and they see this pile of rocks and they say, what's that pile of rocks about? You will say it was at this point where God led us into the land he had promised. We're going to mark for posterity what God has done in being faithful. Another key passage comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7. When God led the people to defeat the Philistines, if you remember, the Philistines were this neighboring tribe who was always a thorn in the side of Israel. And there was a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, and the Israelites won by God's power. And what happened was then Samuel took a stone. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, it says, Samuel took a stone and he set it between Mizpah and Shin, that is on the battlefield, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. Now, uh, I doubt there's anybody in here named Ebenezer. I have not in my life ever met a person named Ebenezer. The only Ebenezer I'm aware of is Ebenezer Scrooge from A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, right? And maybe that's why we don't name our kids Ebenezer, because he was a grumpy guy who hated Christmas. Uh, And so when we sing, come thou fount of every blessing and we sing, here I raise my Ebenezer. A lot of us go, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean I raise my hands and go bahambuk right in the middle of the worship set? No. Okay. Ebenezer is actually a compound Hebrew word. It's made from two Hebrew words. One is the word eben, which means stone. The other is the word azer, which means help. In fact, if you go back to the book of Genesis and God says, Adam, I'm going to make a helper for you. Uh, Eve was the azer, the helper. So Ebenezer means stone of help. Right? And so Samuel says, I'm going to put this stone of help right here where God led us to victory to say this, thus far the Lord has helped us. Up to this point, God has been faithful. Now this is really significant in the history of the Jewish people because shortly after that, the people would forget that God had helped them. And they would gather together and they said, Samuel, we want a king. In fact, this is 1 Samuel 7. This happens in 1 Samuel 8. The people get together and they say, we want a king. We don't believe that God will provide everything that we need. We don't believe that God is enough. Give us a king who is tall, who is strong, who will lead us. And Samuel says, don't you remember that God is supposed to lead you? God is supposed to be your helper. And they said, yeah, all that God stuff is good. Give us a king, right? So they get Saul, who ends up being a terrible king because they didn't want to trust God. And as I read through the Old and New Testament, one of the things that I draw out is that the Israelites were absolutely right at critical points in their history to say, look at what God has done, and then let's turn and trust God for the future. If they looked back at this moment, God has helped us and trusted in God, they might not have made that pivot to say, we need a king. And so Samuel sets up this stone, says, thus far the Lord has helped us. My wife, Shannon, and I, for a while, we had a poster in our room that was our Ebenezer poster to remind ourselves of those times in our life when God had been faithful 
in the midst of trial or difficulty or challenges. So when God preserved the life of our son who was born very sick, when God provided one of our children after a time of infertility, when God provided financially when we didn't know how he would provide, and so we would write these moments and illustrate them on this poster board to say, thus far God has helped us and therefore we will trust God to help us for the future. If you were here last week as we talked from Ephesians 5, one of the things that we talked about was how thanksgiving and praise are an antidote to sin, right? Because sin and gratitude have a hard time occupying the same space for very long. If I'm grateful constantly for all God has given me, then I'm not going to look around to find something that I think is better, right? If I am grateful for my family, for my spouse, for my job, for all of the resources he's given me, I'm not going to be tempted to look around and say, I need to take something God hasn't given in an illegitimate way. Gratitude drives out sin. All right, so what I wanted to do this morning, we're going to take a break from the book of Ephesians and as an application from last week's sermon, I want us to take a moment and be thankful to God. I want us to take a moment and celebrate what God has done in and through this church over the last couple of years, in and through Grace Creekside, and then take a moment and say, thus far the Lord has helped us and we want to trust God to help us for the future. So we're going to celebrate what God has done, and then we're going to talk about how we want to prepare for the future we think God is calling us toward. All right, so first thing we're going to do this morning then is just celebrate God's faithfulness. And in order to do that, I want to start by just giving a little bit of history of how God has worked at Grace Bible Church as a whole, and then more specifically at Grace Creekside over the last couple of years. Some of you know that Grace Bible Church was founded in 1965. And in 1965, what happened was, and and some of you have heard this story, Grace uh, split off from another congregation that was out in Bryant. And at the heart of the issue for why they split was this issue of the grace of God. There was a group of men and women who said, look, we will not preach legalistic rules that are not a part of the scripture. We will not give the impression that you earn your salvation or you prove your salvation by your works. But instead, we want to be a people that rabidly preach the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sin and rose again, and all who believe in him can have eternal life as a free gift. And so 1965, this little church started with just a a few people. They had a foundation of grace. They believed in the scripture and they had a foundation of saying, we're going to teach the word of God. Pretty quickly, they developed an emphasis on overseas missions. Within a year or two, they had decided we're going to support about four overseas missionaries at like $10 a month. And it just expanded from there. And the other thing that emerged early on was an emphasis on university students, on college students, which is why in 1974, they bought a property and opened the original Anderson building, which is now our college ministry building, on Anderson Street. If you've ever driven by our Anderson facility or been there, you know that it's really just about a quarter mile away from Texas A&M. When I was a student, sometimes I would walk to church in the morning because it was easier to walk and walk back than to try to find a parking place after church. When I came back, they bought that 
facility and that property because they said, we believe in the strategic value of families and students worshiping together. And we want to be a part of that process of families and grown-ups discipling students and students contributing to the lives of these families and this sort of synergy that would take place for the Great Commission as families discipled students, as students discipled one another and then went out into the nations. Right, that's been part of our history. In fact, most of our missionaries, we have somewhere around 80 or 85 full-time overseas missionaries right now. Most of them were once part of the college ministry at Grace Bible Church. In fact, almost all of them. There's only a handful that did not in some way participate in the university ministry. As the, as the church grew, particularly packed with students, uh, they built another building, 1995. So this was built while I was in school. Right across the street from the old one. They opened up this facility to open up more space. The old one became the college facility. And then they built this new building in 95. And and the church continued to grow. So that by the time that I was uh, in my later years as a student and then an intern, there was a question beginning to emerge at Grace among the elders and the pastors. And it was this. How do we continue to grow without sacrificing what makes Grace Bible Church Grace Bible Church? Right? How do we continue to do that? Because there was a conviction that we are called to the Great Commission and we want to continue to grow because we want more space for people to hear the good news of Jesus. We want more capacity to make disciples. We're not trying just to be a big church, but we want, if, if God is sending people our way, we want to have the room for them. So how do we make the room without sacrificing what makes us distinct? Because one of the options on the table in those days was to sell the property on Anderson Street and go buy property somewhere off the highway or somewhere farther away from the campus and build a really big facility that could seat, you know, 5,000, 7,000 or whatever. That's what churches tended to do back in those days when they grew. But our elders and pastors continually came back to this idea that if we do that, we will sacrifice the proximity to the campus. And we don't want to do that. One of our older uh, men who was an elder for many years, a founding elder, used to always say, you'll never get your money's worth out of this facility on Anderson Street because of its strategic location for students. Right. So that conversation went on for years. And right around 2005, 2006, shortly after I came on staff as the college pastor, one of our pastors read a book about a new movement that was emerging in the church world called the multi-site movement, right? And the idea behind the multi-site movement was instead of building giant buildings, why don't we have one church that meets in several places so that your congregation, just like you might have two services in a morning, you might actually have a congregation meeting in two locations that shares a leadership structure. They share some financial resources, right? Many of the churches at the time, what they did was they had a very dynamic speaker. And so they would send his teaching via video to another location so that another location location could hear that pastor, right? And we began to pray about that and said, you know, that's a pretty good model with the exception that we don't want to video for one reason. We didn't have the money actually to do it well, but another reason is we didn't want to video the pastors every week. And part of that was going back to the DNA of our church. We said, we, we are not trying to be a church that's a cult of personality, right? Where there's one person beamed to 15,000 people across this town. 
But instead, we want to be a church dedicated to discipleship and leadership development. So we said instead of doing video campuses, we'll do live teaching campuses where we raise up teachers and send them to teach and lead at another campus and then another campus and then another campus. Now, at the time, a lot of the multi-site experts actually said, you guys are crazy. You can't plant another campus less than five miles away from your first campus and have two live teachers who are competing with one another. You're just going to split the group in half. Nobody was really doing it. Now, it's interesting, a lot of people are, but in 2008, what we did was we launched the Southwood campus and Blake Jennings became the teaching pastor. And what we found really quickly was that it exploded, right? Just like the Anderson campus had. Within a few years, it was full, full of students, full of families, right? So that by around 2012 and 2013, the question was beginning to come up, now what, right? Anderson is full, Southwood is full, what do we do now? And our elders by that point said, okay, I think it's time to start talking about a third campus, January, February of 2014, our elders had a couple of all-day meetings where they prayed and they discussed and they talked about what's next, where are we going to go? And they emerged from that saying, okay, we think it's time to plant a third location. And they said, Matt, Morton, we want you to be the teaching pastor of that third location. And I went back this week and I read some of the letters that we sent out to the congregation. Some of you may remember getting these letters. And basically they said, we're going to start a third campus. Matt's going to be the teacher. And we don't know anything else about it. That was what they said. I mean, basically they were like, we don't know where it's going to be. We don't know when it's going to start. We don't know how much it's going to cost. We don't know who needs to be on staff. We don't know what the programs are going to be. Stay tuned, right? And that was the essence of the content because we didn't know. All we knew was that God had moved us to this next phase. So what happened was over the next year and a half, that was basically my job was to figure all that stuff out in coordination with our elders, in coordination with our pastors. Where are we going to go? We started looking at how much it was going to cost, thinking about the staff that we were going to need. It was a whirlwind. Sometime around uh, 2014 to 2015, Chris Thompson, our campus pastor, came on staff. And so he and I began to work together in this process. We started having prayer meetings in the spring of 2015, um, shortly before we opened. We opened in fall 2015. Here's our first prayer meeting. This is a picture of the first prayer meeting we had, obviously in the cafetorium next door. I was looking at this this morning. I realized I actually still have that shirt. I don't know if you can see it. It's one of my favorite shirts that I still wear sometimes. But we had this little gathering in the cafetorium and just prayed. We didn't know exactly what God was going to do. By that point, we planned to launch in the fall. We knew it would be at Pebble Creek and we were beginning to gather a staff. Our first public service was August 23rd, 2015. We had a couple of practice runs because uh, we weren't sure if we'd be able to set all of this stuff up well. And so we had a couple practice runs to make sure we could do it and then open to the public. But over uh, the course of about four months, and this, uh, as I looked at that this week, I I thought, man, how the Lord provided. We raised $250,000 for our launch in about four months. I remember looking at that number when we said, this is what we need and thinking that's a huge number to raise before the fall. Right, and we placed it before the congregation prayerfully, and that money came in like that. I mean, just so quickly. And all of the equipment you see, all of the curtains, all of the partitions, all the chairs, all of that came out of that $250,000. That's how we were able to get started. 
We also identified and hired staff. By summer of 2015, as I mentioned, we had Chris Thompson. We had our children's ministry staff. We had Whitney Creel and Jen Chalmers. We had some fellows on board who were handling things like Club 56 and other programs. The staff began to come together by summer 2015. And then again, our first public service was August 23rd, 2015. Some of y'all were there. Many of y'all were there. Here's a picture of the first service. Now, if you have joined us in the last year or two, you may not know, we used to meet in the cafetorium. So the main service was over there and the kids were in here. Uh, The cafetorium had its challenges as a worship venue. One is it's more like a tunnel than a meeting room, right? So it's got a low ceiling. It's kind of got walls that are narrow. And as we grew, there were close to 300 people that first service. As we grew, it got really tight in there. The gym is a larger room. So sometime in the last year and a half, we've moved the main service over in here and the elementary school kids are over there. We just swapped. A couple other pictures from our first Sunday. Uh, This is the children's ministry, the elementary. That is John Creel running toward the camera. The happiest look on his face. I don't know where he was headed, but excited about children's ministry. Um, that's our old Club 56 director, Benjamin P- Pinkerton, uh, who he's now at DTS. I don't know what had happened in the Club 56 room to uh, get that face from him. But, uh, and then this was the, uh, the nursery area, the early childhood area. I think those are either the three or four-year-olds, maybe both, gathered together for a lesson. I remember walking around that first Sunday uh, as we launched and honestly just being overwhelmed by the goodness of God. That something that we had prayed for for years, that we had planned for for years, was taking shape. I remember being in tears, honestly, at how God had provided. And we were at this moment where we were able to see a congregation come into existence in a part of town where there at the time, there were no other churches south of 40. To see God create a group of men and women who came to worship together where previously there wasn't one. And in every week, I still feel that sense of, of privilege and joy. This has been the greatest privilege of my ministry, to be a part of Grace Creekside. It's a dream come true because of all that God has done. Now, I want to share just for a couple of minutes some statistics with you just to give you a sense of where we are, uh, where we've come from. When we launched in 2015... Our average on Sunday morning was around 270 people. Uh, In 2017, this fall, we've averaged around 340. That's about a 26% increase. Now, I share that not to say that the number itself is important, but here's what it highlights for us is that as our community grows, we are growing. Right, And as we grow, as we grow spiritually, uh, we, uh, many of us, I know in this room, I've seen many of us are uh, sharing the gospel with friends. We are engaging with people in the workplace and then saying, come and worship with me. Come here and hear about the word of God in this place. And so as the community grows, we continue to grow. All right, the other thing that struck me as I looked at these numbers was this is a very, very prolific church. We have on average 164 kids between nursery 
through sixth grade, right? That's an unbelievable ratio, roughly one child for every two adults in the worship service. And a lot of you don't even have kids, right? So from those of you that do, you have many of them typically, right? So we have a lot of kids coming on average. That's an average. That's not even a peak. On average, 164 kids, nursery through sixth grade. I remember one of our early uh, sort of social gatherings that we had out at Pebble Creek Park looking around and it felt like there were like 25 grownups and like 300 children. I mean, children were like coming up out of the ground, it seemed like. They were just everywhere, right? And as we continue to grow, families continue to grow, and more families continue to come, and those, those kiddo numbers continue to grow. If you've ever walked over to the elementary or nursery area, you know it gets a little packed over there with the kids that are in there. It's fantastic, but it does pose some challenges for us. We'll talk about those in a couple of minutes. Uh, we started a youth group on Sunday morning just this fall. We wanted to make sure that there were enough youth kids to sort of justify a Sunday morning gathering. They have been meeting for the last uh, year and a half, maybe two years, um, at the Homeyers residence in South College Station, and there have been as many as 35 kids meeting there on Wednesday nights. Um, on Sunday morning, they've got about 15 to 20, and there's some overlap between those groups. Our, my daughter is in the youth group, but it's not 100% overlap. A lot of the kids that come on Wednesday night are not kids that come here on Sunday morning and vice versa, right? But as they have ministered to those students, I talked with Gavin, our youth director this week. He told me just this year, three young men have trusted in Jesus for the first time through the ministry of our youth group. Y'all saw uh, last week or the week before, seven students were baptized uh, over the summer to make a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, which, man, that's a bold step for a junior high or a high schooler to stand in front of peers and say, I want to follow Jesus Christ. So our youth ministry is continuing to grow and have an impact in this community. And that has an impact, by the way, on families of youth kids who see the lives of their kids transformed and then say, I want to know Jesus like my 7th grader, 8th grader, ninth grader is coming to know Jesus. We do have a college ministry. They uh, meet at 11 o'clock. Um, and so some students come in here to the service, some go to the college ministry, and there's some overlap there. 15 to 20 college students, and we hope that continues to grow in keeping with our DNA. And then this last number, it flashed up there for just a minute, but this was overwhelming to me. Okay, 275 people on our volunteer list. That's 80% of those who are coming on Sunday morning are on our volunteer list to some degree, right? That's why I know when we are in here, especially at the 11 o'clock service, and we say, hey, we need more volunteers. Most of you go, I'm already doing it, right? Like, you guys are. You guys are the reason that this comes together every week, that our nursery is staffed, that our elementary is staffed. 275, that blew me away. And I got to tell you, uh, I have never been to a church with that kind of percentage of people actively serving uh, to make sure that church happens ever. So thank you. Thank you for participating to make Grace Creekside come together each week. I know that you're using the gifts that God has given you, but we're grateful for all that you've done and all that God has done. Now, as I mentioned, that 340, that is an average. It's not a peak. And so we have had Sundays where we peak much higher. This was Easter from this past year. There were almost closer to 500 people in the room. If you were here, you remember we just had one service. And so it gets really packed with that many people. I don't know how well you can see, but uh, behind the main chairs, there's actually two or three other rows of chairs right along 
the back wall, right? It gets really full. And so from the very beginning, we've known if we want to continue to grow as a congregation and have the capacity to reach South College Station as it grows, we're going to need eventually a permanent location. Also, because eventually the school district may say, time's up, right? I think they like having us, uh, but they don't intend for us to stay here for 30 years, nor do we intend that. So we've known from the beginning. So before we even launched, we began the process of looking for permanent land to be on. And uh, anybody who has been involved in uh, land sale or development in this part of town, you know that right now land in this part of town is scarce and it's expensive. And so we went through multiple rounds with different developers and had a hard time even finding somebody who would talk to us about selling their property. All right, but one of our elders happened to know somebody who, whose family owned a piece of property, this piece of property down near Williams Creek, called him and said, hey, would you be interested in talking to a church about putting a church on this property? And he said, you know, my dad was a pastor. So I've always had a soft spot in my heart for a church. So let's talk. Right? And the Lord opened that door. And over the next several months to a year, we went forward with purchasing this property. Um, you can see this is William D. Fitch and this is Williams Creek. Most of our church facility is going to be really right up on the high end of this property right here. Um, we've been in the design process for the last several months, actually, with an architect. This uh, week, our staff got to go out there and stand on the property, and we spent some time in prayer for what God is going to do through that property as we move forward. So where we are right now, as we look forward, um, the design is nearing completion. That is, we're meeting with the architect. They've been working on a design, trying to figure out what fits a congregation of our size and thinking about growth in the future, both in terms of kids ministry, youth ministry, but worship ministry as well. So the design is nearing completion. The building completion goal, and I put hope, all right? I'm emphasizing these words of uncertainty. Goal, hope, we wish for fall of 2019. That's our timeline is that hopefully fall of 19, we'll be able to host our first service in our new facility. Now that depends on a number of things like permitting from the city, fundraising, and a number of issues like that. Over the next few months, we're going to be talking more about some of the fundraising. Um, we're we're going to lay out kind of where is God leading Grace Bible Church as a whole, not just Creekside, but the whole church. So there's going to be an initiative that's going to include all of Grace Bible Church, not just for the next couple of years while we build a building, but how can we be a church that's positioned to reach the community and the country and the world for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, God willing, if the Lord doesn't return before then. Right. On the other hand, if you're right now, you're like, you know what, I would like to give toward the building. You can give toward the debt retirement on the land. If you write a check that you intend to go to that, just put Creekside Land Debt Retirement or go to the website and you can give on the website. There's actually some drop down boxes and one of them says Creekside Land Debt Retirement. If you give toward that or toward the legacy fund, those will ultimately go toward the facility that we are hoping to build in the future. All right, so that gives you just a little bit of an idea of where we've been, an opportunity to celebrate that we've gone from zero to an active, worshiping, thriving congregation. But we also want to continue to prepare for the future. We want to prepare for the future. And one of the ways we want to do that 
is by staying focused on those distinctives that made us Grace Bible Church in the first place. Right? So, a few of those. The grace of God. We've been preaching through Ephesians chapter 2, for actually the whole book of Ephesians all semester. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. We want to continue, just like our forefathers at Grace Bible Church were. We want to continue to be focused on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That that is our center from which we proclaim the gospel. All right, I was talking to a member of our church at one of our other campuses about a year ago, and he was talking about how he grew up in a pretty legalistic environment, in a denominational environment where the message was, if you don't do enough, if you're not good enough, God might take away your salvation. And he said at Grace, it was the first time he really heard the message of Grace. He said, sitting in a home group where it was laid out to him, look, all you need for eternal life is to trust in what Jesus has already done. And the Spirit empowers you to obey. And you don't obey so that you can earn eternal life. You obey because God has given you eternal life. And he said it was revolutionary. He said it changed my life. It changed the way I interact with my family. Changed the way I interact with my kids. Changed the way I interact with God. He said everything changed because now I have the security that God loves me. And God has saved me through Jesus Christ. And so I can obey him with joy rather than in fear. It was revolutionary. That's what we want to be is a church that contributes to that kind of story over and over and over and over again where people encounter the grace of God. Gordon MacDonald, the writer and pastor, said this, the world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. And Philip Yancey said this, I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned to the church because I found grace nowhere else. That's what we want to be, is a place where the grace of God lives and thrives and is proclaimed through us. We also want to continue to be a place where the word of God is preached. Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I'll never forget when I was in high school, I had a friend who trusted Christ in high school, but she had gone to church her whole life. I said, how is it possible that you went to church your whole life and you heard the Bible and you didn't know Jesus? And she said, well, why don't you visit with me and you'll see. Right, so we went to this church. And I remember we, we went into the service and the pastor read a verse. And then for 30 minutes, he preached something that had nothing to do with the verse. It was his opinion. We went to Sunday school and they opened up a book. They never opened the Bible to hear what God had to say. And so we're committed to be a place that doesn't preach what I have to say or what my opinion is, but preaches the word of God. I ran across a study really from just this year, Lifeway, 2017. They did a study of Americans and Bible reading, and they found this. Only about 20% of Americans have read the whole Bible. Now, when you get to those who are 18 to 24, that number drops to about 4% who have read the entire Bible of those 18 to 24. 
around half of Americans have only read very small selections. Like about half of the United States, they've read a few sentences or stories or even none of it at all. Some have read, have read none of it. Only 39% of those who regularly go to church read the Bible daily. That is 61% of those who say, you know what, I go to church regularly. They never open up the Bible really during the week. 43% of those 18 to 24 say that they've read no more than a few sentences. And 25% of those, of of all those 18 to 24-year-olds, haven't even read it at all. 25% of 18 to 24-year-olds say, I've never opened a Bible. I've never read a sentence. I've never read a story. And so we want to remain committed to being a place where the word of God is preached because we believe that in the word of God, we find the good news of Jesus Christ. We learn about who God is. We learn what he wants of us. We also want to be committed to the community of believers. Acts chapter 2 describes the early church and multiple times in verses 42 to 47 talks about how they did everything together. They shared what they had. They worshiped together. There's this word fellowship or koinonia. It doesn't mean that they had a bunch of potlucks, although they may have. Right? But what it means is they shared in the ministry. They shared in life together. That's the kind of place we want to be. Remember John 13, 35. We talked about it last week in the context of Ephesians, how Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Right? And we live in a world in which love is in short supply and community is in short supply. I ran across this graph earlier this week. This is a survey of 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. And uh, you can see this plots how they answered on questions like, I often feel left out of things or a lot of times I feel lonely, right? And the the author of this study was trying to make a point that actually our phones uh, make us more susceptible to isolation. So you can see the spike after 2007 when the iPhone was released. All right, whether it's phones that cause the isolation or not, I think it's clear that people feel more isolated than they ever have, especially our young people. They feel they don't have community. They feel lonely. They feel cut off. Even though they may have a thousand people who are their friends online, they don't know people who listen and have compassion and care for them. And Jesus says, they'll know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? And out of that community, I think that's where discipleship is going to spring. And so we've always said, look, we want to be a place where we're a community of faith. And to some degree, because we are right now smaller than our other campuses, it's a little bit relatively easier for us to do that, right? Because we know each other for the most part. But I've been so encouraged. This past week, I was on the phone with a couple of people in our congregation who either were in the hospital or had family members in the hospital, people at Creekside. And I asked these questions like, uh, has anybody come to see you? Are all your needs met? Have you heard from anybody at the church? Are people caring for you? And the answers I got back were things like this. Oh yeah, this member sat with me for five hours in the hospital yesterday. Right? Or this person called me. Or we have meals set up. Or I had to post an update on Facebook because I've been getting so many texts and phone calls from Grace Creekside people that I can't answer them all because they're so concerned about our family. I love that. And my prayer is we'll continue to be a people that that care for one another as Jesus called us to do because that reflects the grace and the love of God in Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, we want to be a people dedicated to the great commission itself, that we are continuing to say we want to make disciples as Jesus called us to do of all the nations, 
that Creekside really is just one step in the story of Grace Bible Church moving forward. We want to be dedicated to the Great Commission, that we want to share the gospel. You remember earlier this semester, we talked about how we want to, to think of those in our sphere of influence who are far from Jesus, to identify, say, I want to share the gospel or at least have a spiritual conversation with two people who are far from Jesus Christ, to share the gospel, to make disciples. That goes back to that student and family connection, but not just college students and families, also our younger kids and parents and even adults discipling other adults. We want to continue to train one another to know Jesus better and then say, now you go and train others who will train others, like 2 Timothy 2.2 says, who will train and teach others who will teach others to know Jesus Christ. That's the Great Commission, and we want to do that not just here at Creekside, but continue to also multiply, right? to multiply churches and campuses in this community as well as throughout the country, as well as throughout the world. Some of you may not even know that uh, we, I cannot remember the exact numbers, but we had one of our pastors look at this recently. How many churches has Grace Bible Church been involved in planting, not just in the United States, but around the world? And I'm not exaggerating, it was hundreds of churches. Now, some of those are home churches in other countries, but uh, I think he said about 300 of them are churches like you'd envision, that there is either somebody who went out from Grace Bible Church church who helped plant that church or we actively resourced that church that hundreds of churches are in existence because of the ministry of grace bible church over the past 52 years we want to continue that process which is why creekside really is not the end of the vision for grace bible church our building is not the end of the story a building is a tool so that we can continue the purposes of god for the next generation and the next generation So we want to stay focused and then we want to stay involved. Briefly, as we close, before we celebrate communion, a few ways you can be involved. One, continue to pray. Continue to pray. I can't think of a season in our ministry uh, in the recent past where we are more in need of prayer. Certainly, we're always in need of all the prayer that we can give to the task. But as we move forward and think about some really big things in front of us, be praying God would provide, pray he'd provide the resources, pray he'd provide the energy, pray men and women would continue to come and trust Jesus Christ. Participate. Again, I recognize most of you are as volunteers, but also participate in home groups, participate in discipleship and mentorship, continue to know the word of God and engage with our church to make disciples and to be a disciple. And then thirdly, Begin to pray about how would God have you give of your money and your resources to further what he wants to do in the future. For all of us to begin to pray about how can we give of our time, how can we give of our resources, and yes, how can we give of our money to participate in what God wants to do for the future. As we uh, close then, as we look back on that celebration and we think about preparing for the future, we're going to celebrate communion and the men are going to come forward. Communion is a great opportunity for us to celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, to look back. And the church has always done this. I mean, Jesus initiated this. He said, I want you to remember, right? Communion is like a memorial stone to say, I want you to remember what I did. Remember my body and my blood given for you because that gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection is the foundation of our lives. 
right? And so if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, if you came in and you don't yet have a relationship with him, feel free to let the elements pass and and allow the spirit to speak to your heart to ask, is today the day in which God is calling you to trust in Jesus for the very first time, right? Nobody's going to be looking at you. Nobody's going to be judging you if you let him pass by. And take that moment to say, I want to trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. If you know him, then take this time as the elements come around, just to say, thank you, God. Thank you that thus far you have helped us. You saved us from our sin. You gave us eternal life. You've gathered us together. And then we want to move forward in faith wherever you call. So men, if you would come forward and we'll prepare. First Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray and then we'll close in song. Father, we're grateful for the morning and the opportunity to worship you. I pray that we would remain focused on your grace and on your word, on loving one another and on making disciples. We thank you so much that you thus far have helped us in innumerable ways, in ways we don't even know that we're not even aware of because you have all knowledge and we are very limited. I pray we'd trust you as we move forward. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.